communities across the state and nation are grappling with ways to remove harmful chemicals from municipal water supplies, but it's just the latest battle for environmental cleanup as scientists work toward a better understanding about chemicals used for years of manufacturing and other activities can affect our health. What do we know now that we didn't know years ago, and what are state regulators doing to protect the public? Welcome to Route 51. I'm Shireen Seward. Today, we take a look at the chemicals and pollutants that are most prevalent in Wisconsin communities and what you should know about the risks involved. Later in the program, we'll be joined by Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources hydrogeologist Matt Thompson to talk about standards and specifics when it comes to regulated cleanup activities. But first, we'll spend some time with a Harvard-trained toxicologist who has been closely involved with cleanup efforts in the Wausau area. Stephen Lester is the science director for the Center for Health, Environment, and Justice. He directs the group's research efforts and provides technical and scientific assistance to communities concerned about environmental health issues. Stephen, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start by just asking you to tell us about yourself and your background and about the center, how it all got started. Uh, sure. Um, well, you mentioned my name, Stephen Lester. I'm the science director with uh, CHEJ, Center for Health, Environment, and Justice. And CHEJ grew out of the Love Canal experience. And Love Canal, for maybe some of your listeners who don't aren't familiar with it, is a toxic dump site in upstate New York that in 1978 uh, became a, a national uh, contaminate. It's probably one of the worst contaminated sites in America. And it was highlighted uh, back in that time by uh, the efforts of the local community group. There was a woman named Lois Gibbs who um, led the community efforts there. And she is our founding director at the center. And um, my role there was I was hired by the state of New York to provide technical assistance to grass to the to the community there, to the residents of Love Canal. And so my job was to first be on the clean site where the cleanup occurred. Uh, the, that took about two years, and then also to work with the residents to help them understand the enormous amount of scientific information, environmental testing data primarily, that was generated during the Love Canal experience and. In the landfill there, there were 20,000 tons of toxic waste, and these chemicals slowly seeped out of the landfill and eventually got into homes. And there were levels in homes immediately adjacent to this landfill that exceeded occupational health standards. So there were enormously high levels. And initially, the state of New York relocated and evacuated the first two rows of houses that were parallel to the landfill. This was truly an old canal that was partially dug and then abandoned and backfilled in with toxic chemicals. And so the, um, the, the city, the state relocated the first two rows of families, but left everybody else. And they put up a chain link fence and said everything else, everybody, nobody else outside that chain link fence has been affected by these chemicals. Well, Lois and, and another uh, 800 families didn't agree with that, uh, that opinion. And they organized, they formed the Love Canal Homeowners Association. Uh, they created a, a tremendous pressure on the state of New York and eventually on the U.S. EPA and the U.S. government in general, which ended up winning them relocation for the entire neighborhood of some together between 240 originally and then another 700, over 900 families were relocated from this community. And it was the spark to the creation of what's referred to as the Superfund cleanup legislation. Uh, that's part of the federal Superfund program. And that 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 provided a fee on uh, 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 waste companies or, or companies in general 
and those fees were used to fund the cleanup of contaminated sites around the United States. And that's still in place today. So you got involved in the Love Canal cleanup uh, kind of in a different capacity. And then the center was born after that, right? Yes, exactly. I mean, after what happened was that after the success of Love Canal and the, the public attention that was given to, to the efforts there, uh, Lois and I actually talked about, um, you know, Lois had changed her place in life, if you will. She, um, at time, was not working, and she he, she had become a very different person after the experience of Love Canal. She wanted to do something different. So her and I talked about starting an organization, because there was no such organization in this country at that time, that would provide the kind of organizing and science support to local groups fighting toxic chemical sites around the United States. So that's what we did. We started that group really um, on a wing and a prayer, so to speak. And and uh, but what happened is people, because they knew Lois's name, or because they were dealing with a toxic site, they would look it up and read about the Love Canal story, and they'd say, "Well, wow, how do I get a hold of this woman, Lois Gibbs?" And so that's that's how we got our work. And we never, in in now it's over forty years of work, we've never done any advertising. All our work comes to us through word of mouth and through people hearing about us now it's through the internet but oh before that it was really just word of mouth and so and what we do as an organization is we provide organizing support and science supports to these grassroots groups and so we kind of see that as our primary mission is i do the science work if you will we have had i've had over the years different people supporting me in the science department and then we've had as many at one time as many as 17 organizers on our staff to help the community groups around the united states Kind of figure out what they need to know to deal with the problems and and usually the very first layer of what we call this is sort of an onion this kind of thing is the very first layer is is helping them understand the science and then it's helping them create a strong and effective and 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 focused organization and then it's helping them understand how to use the science to um, be a part of their organizing strategy and plans how prevalent are these sites i mean are we talking about one or two across the country or are they much more prevalent yeah. than that no the these superfund sites which are generally described as the most toxic waste sites in america right now there's about 1200 of them around the country that many uh, and and really since almost the very beginning there's been over a thousand at any one time that are being addressed by the epa i mean they've they've so called cleaned up and removed from the list maybe 4 or 500 but um, for the most part, there's been well over a thousand constantly on these on, uh, on this list and, and part of the cleanup program. And that doesn't, and there are hundreds, really thousands more around the country that are not on that list, but are contaminated. They're either in different stages of investigation or they're just, um, you know, the companies are taking the lead and doing the cleanup in some of these sites. So they don't get listed, uh, those particular kinds of sites, no matter how bad they are. So, um, yeah, there's there's plenty of them around the country, and and unfortunately, it keeps us in business, so to speak. And and uh, someday we're hoping that there won't be a need for a group like ours because there'll be, you know, there won't be these kind of sites around the country. Here in Wausau, there's an environmental advocacy group that's made up of residents concerned about the impact of dioxin and other pollutants in their neighborhoods. It's Citizens for a Clean Wausau. How did you get involved with Citizens for a Clean Wausau? How did you become aware of what was going on in central Wisconsin? Yeah, the great question. Um, as I mentioned, I mean, we we were approached by um, one of the leaders of the community there, Tom Killian. Uh, and uh, we, he contacted one of our organizers and asked for some help. 
he had heard about our organization through, I'm not exactly sure how, but maybe likely through the internet. And he reached out to Teresa Mills, who was our staff organizer at the time. And um, one of the first things she said is, uh, you know, she started asking him questions like, do you have a group? You know, what is your goals? And all those kind of basic, simple questions when they first contact us. And then uh, she, Teresa found out that they had, at the time, some uh, concerns about dioxin in the park, dioxin contamination in the park. And, um, you know, dioxin is a very unusual chemical, one that CHEJ and myself in particular have, have spent a great deal of time and given it a great deal of attention. And part of the reason is because it is one of the most toxic chemicals ever tested in, in the United States. It, it is toxic in the parts per trillion of the T level, which is at least a thousand times more than almost any other chemical you can think of. And so it's an extraordinarily toxic material. It is not specifically produced. It's a, a it's generally, there are a family of dioxins, about 75 of them that are generated as a byproduct of a variety of different chemical processes. The most common one is incineration and burning, but it's also generated in uh, plastics production and um, uh, uh, um, paper uh, production. Uh, they use a chlorine to bleach paper and to make it white. And so that process generates dioxin as a byproduct. And, and there are a variety, a host of other, you know, different processes, industrial processes that involve chlorine. And you need basically chlorine and, and, a, and, a, and a, another element, uh, a, a ring compound that, uh, that's uh, to create dioxin. And, and there's plenty of it generated in this country. And at one time, there was an enormous uh, concern about this by the EPA. And they, to this day, have not finalized their dioxin reassessment reass of the health effects of dioxin. Really? It began in 1985, and they wow. have still finalized this document primarily because um, they, when they were close, uh, and it's per it's because of its toxicity, because it's so highly toxic, and uh, it's one of the most potent carcinogens, really, it, it, the most potent man-made chemical uh, in, in ever generated. I mean, there are a few other natural chemicals that are a little more toxic, but these, this is the most, this is the king of the crop, so to speak, in terms of uh, man-made. But um, the other, what, what happened is that when they did their reassessment of the health effects, they found that it was extra toxic at such extraordinary levels and that, that had they regulated it, then they would have had an enormous economic impact on the United States. Primarily because dioxin uh, is fat soluble, it's uh, generated. It when it's generated and released into the environment, it falls out, gets onto farmland. Cows and other animals will consume the the, the grass where the, the dioxin um, absorb uh, lands, and eventually it gets absorbed into their system. It it bioaccumulates in their body, and you get dioxin in milk and hamburg and meats of all kinds, and butter and dairy products. You name it. And so this, had they regulated this the way they were close to doing, it would have had enormous impact on the public uh, and the, the economy of the United States. And this was back in the, in the mid-1990s when they were close to doing this. And so they chose not to. And they ended up doing a non-cancer risk assessment for an evaluation for dioxin. And that has been finalized. That was finalized in 2012. And basically, that sets that is used today 
as the only available official standard for the public health exposure to docs and chemicals. And so, um, and even that is, is one of the most, you know, it drives the risk down to a very extraordinarily low levels. So if you were to use, look at how much dioxin would be safe to be consumed by the public using this number, it's, it's, a, it's a very small amount. Why did Citizens for Clean Wausau and the residents in the area have so much trouble getting people to listen to them about the risks involved with dioxin in the park? They, they had to push and push and push. They fought for years to, to, to get people to listen to them and take the risk seriously. How come? And I mean, is that common? It, unfortunately, it is somewhat common in, in terms of government's response to dealing with contaminations from dioxin. And the big problem with it all is that there's no final health assessment, risk cancer assessment for dioxin. And so it, and, and every government agency that's had any experience knows that dioxin is a bit of a Pandora's box because the, the, the potency of the chemical and the lack of a final assessment that there's not a lot of bright lights or, or clear, clear standards to use to judge it. So it's a complicated situation and government tends to walk away from it, turn its back on it. You, you have to do what the folks in us are experienced, which is to just push hard to get them to address the reality and the seriousness of this chemical. You're listening to Stephen Lester on Route 51. We're having a discussion on environmental contamination in Wisconsin communities and what can be done to protect public health. I'm Shereen Seward. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. Back on Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio, I'm Shereen Seward. Ahead, we'll hear from the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, Matt Thompson, but now we continue our discussion with CHEJ Science Director, Stephen Lester. We've been talking about dioxin in the soil in Wausau, and I know that's a problem in many communities. How long do these dioxins stay in the ground, and, and do they pose any kind of risk to groundwater or municipal, municipal drinking water systems? Yes, um, dioxins are highly persistent uh, contaminants. They will be around for tens, if not hundreds of years, many, many years. Uh, they do not break down very readily, so they stay in the soil. Um, they are often found in particulates, uh, dust that gets re redistributed after they settle out, after they fall from their, their incinerators or from whatever sources. So they are around for a long time. Um, and they are uh, and they are uh, difficult even for the body to break down. So their 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 toxicity yes, is uh, stays uh, with them for all that time. You uh, spoke quite a bit after the East Palestine train derailment happened last year, and a lot of people in Wisconsin are worried about could that happen here, and if it did. What would the risks be? So talk a little bit about what happened there and what were the health risks involved? Uh, sure. Uh, yeah, that 
That's an incredible situation. And and I, I was fortunate to be invited to go there about a, two weeks after the train derailment. And I attended a town hall meeting, probably 250 people were at that meeting. And it was the first time the public had had an opportunity to talk to anybody else other than the EPA. Uh, so uh, what just a quick reaction to that meeting was that it, it immediately I had flashbacks of Love Canal because the community was asking many of the same questions that the residents of Love Canal had been asking about, you know, what do I do? You know, is it safe for me to go back into my home? Uh, will my, will, is it safe for me to cut my grass? Is, you know, what can I do? What are the risks? Uh, I'm worried about my kids and their future. And these were similar questions to what residents at Love Canal had. So it's pretty much a very similar situation. And and the common denominator uh, between uh, East Palestine and, um, and oh, let me just briefly describe what happened there for the sure. folks who may not be familiar. And what happened is there was a train, probably a 150-car train that derailed uh, on, a, on a main line that went right through the town of East Palestine. And... Uh, probably 30 or 40 cars actually derailed of the 150. Uh, 10 or 15 of those were carrying toxic chemicals. And one of them was vinyl chloride. Vinyl chloride is, is a highly potent carcinogen, affects the central nervous system, the liver, um, and it's a very nasty chemical. And so for very uh, controversial and unusual reason, our decision was made to burn the 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 chemicals on the train after it had derailed to, 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 to bleed and, and release the contaminants into the ground and burn them. Uh, EPA claims they were informed, but they never gave their approval. Uh, the town, the Norfolk Southern who operated the train and made the decision claims that EPA was involved in this all the way. There's a lot of finger pointing, but the bottom line is when they did that, when they burned that, and there was huge black cloud that was generated when they did this. It generated a great amount of dioxin because you were burning the vinyl chloride. And so that was spread downwind uh, uh, from that location. People at the public meeting that first night, they, uh, not, not the first night, but the night I was there, talked about being enveloped in the cloud, that they couldn't see their hand in front of them their, themselves and that it, it had reached quite quite a distance in, into Pennsylvania. This, this site is actually on the borderline of Pennsylvania. So people in Pennsylvania talked about the smoke as well and the, and the impact of, of the fire. And so it, it generated a huge amount of questions from the community about what to do. And initially EPA wouldn't, wouldn't, wasn't even interested and did not want to test for dioxin, which was just, I could not understand. I, ended, I, I wrote a, 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 a sort of an op-ed piece that was published in The Guardian that actually asked the question, asked, posed that question. And the, the, basically what I said in the article was that I believe that EPA was afraid to test for dioxin because they knew what they would find. A, they would find dioxin. And that if they found dioxin, then they'd have to an, answer the questions that the people had. They couldn't walk away from the community. And so... Um, after some public push, some significant public push, they agreed EPA to do that testing, and they did. But they said, even before they started the testing, that they didn't expect to find anything, that they did, any dioxin. They, they thought that the, dioc the levels would be consistent with whatever they're finding everywhere in the environment and that it should, wouldn't be any big deal. Well, and so they gave the company the 
authority to decide where to test for dioxin, what samples to take, where to take them, how many to take. And when I read the report from the company, their, con their contractor, what they uh, were given the authority to do was to simply walk the area that had been uh, impacted by the, the, the fire. And if they saw evidence of residual from the fire, such as ash that might have fallen out from the burn, then they could take a sample there. Or they could choose to take samples any place they want. That's well, it. That's I was it. outraged when I read that in their report. And I, and I raised this question with the community, and I raised it with EPA, and, and the question was, why would you give them the authority to do that? I've been evaluating contaminated sites for over 40 years, and I've never seen EPA give anybody the, the authority to make their decisions based on some arbitrary and capricious whim, like especially the responsible party. I mean, uh, so... It, you know, usually what EPA requires, they did this at Love Canal and done it at hundreds of sites I've been involved in, is you do some kind of objective grid pattern or you do a concentric grid, you know, from a central point. But it's it's never just let the people who did this walk around and decide where to take samples. And so while they generated a great number of samples and, and results from the analysis of that, I don't have much confidence in it, and primarily because EPA refused to release any information on where they took their samples. They they did release the information on how they took their samples, but they they never wrote, never have identified where. And and with the trained realm, and it wasn't just a, and there were a number of samples they found that exceeded various standards, not not standards, but guidelines for what's appropriate. Um, I, I use the number that EPA had generated in their draft cancer risk assessment mm -hmm. for uh, a, a point, and I forget the exact numbers, but there were there were a substantial number, maybe 30% of the values exceeded that number. So there was quite a few. And the question was, well, where are these samples located? Are, people's, are these in people's backyards? Are they in people's homes? But EPA wouldn't release that information, and they wouldn't do any follow-up. Regardless of whatever they found, they would not do any follow-up. And so people, and so today, the, the conundrum that they're coming up on the year anniversary, February 3rd, I think was the, it's going to be the one year anniversary of the trained derailment, and people are still sick. E EPA is still involved in the cleanup at that site, something I think very few people outside of the area really know. Uh, they've just recently completed to their, to at least what they're claiming publicly, completed the cleanup of the soil where they actually burn the, the 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 chemicals that they drain from the tanker tracks. So those just recently got cleaned up or completed, but now there are streams and creeks that are contaminated and they need to address those and those are, are still an issue because while dioxin is is not a very soluble compound, if it gets into drinking water or groundwater, it can cause it can build up and um, pose health risks to the people on drinking water. Uh, and again, EPA actually has a very low, very health protective standard for dioxin in drinking water. Uh, so there's this, you know, people can test for that and look for that in their drinking water. Uh, EPA is refusing to do any of that, however. Um, it, it's been a, a, a strange situation in East Palestine because people have continued to complain about their health. Uh, it wasn't just dioxin. There were a whole host of other upper respiratory chemicals that were included on that train. And so a mixture of chemicals have uh, are what were in that cloud, not just dioxin. And um, what, what's happened is that EPA has continued to state 
that they've not, that all their testing, and they've done hundreds of tests, and that is the truth, they've done hundreds of tests. Very little of it I find though is very uh, valuable to the community because it was, you know, EPA had its own reasons for where they tested. And of course they let the company decide that and 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 um, what they tested for. And in this case, it was primarily just dioxin. They didn't look for anything else. And um, so there's a lot of questions about how they did it and what they did, but people, and and they said publicly that, you know, every, all the tests we're running are not showing any problem with, uh, we don't think people should be having any problems based on what we found. But yet the reality is that people still are having, to this day, are having headaches, nosebleeds, central nervous system problems, uh, irritability of varying types. I mean, they're, they're, they're having a variety of health problems that they attribute to the accident because they didn't have these problems prior to the accident. And so what, and so when you look at what EP, what EPA is saying and what the reality is in the community, and something is has become very clear to me at least, and that is that when you look at what we understand about low-level chemical mixtures and what we know about those what we know about low-level chemical mixtures, it's really very little. So when EPA stands before the public and says, you know, based on our analysis, we we didn't find any problems with with what what the test results. It's based on uh, using what we know about one chemical exposed person exposed to one chemical at a time, and not the mixtures that people are exposed to. And so it 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 so when EPA says that everything's fine, it's not based on any science or any understanding of low level mixtures. It's based on it's based on looking at what results exist for exposure to one chemical at a time, and that's not the reality in East Palestine, and it's not the reality in hundreds of other sites, including East uh, Wausau, where people are exposed to a mixture of chemicals. And so it, it's really brought to light the small, the little, the small, the, the how little we understand about these mixtures. And, and the realities in the communities where these accidents occur and where most contaminations are existing is that people aren't just exposed to one chemical. And so uh, it, it's, 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 a, it's a kind of a, a new issue, if you will, for all of us in the public health community to really come to recognize and come to grips with because the tools we use to evaluate exposure are not looking at and don't come from an understanding of mixtures. It comes from one chemical exposed at a time. It's a real problem. Do you see that changing anytime soon? I do not. I do not. And certainly EPA's defense of its decision-making in East Palestine, I, I have found it to be uh, awful, honestly, to use a simple word. Uh, they, you know, there were independent scientists who went in and did indoor air testing in a number of homes with people complaining about odors and were complaining having a whole host of health problems. And these researchers found contaminants, a whole range of contaminants. And they gave their results to EPA and said, you need to go in there and do your own testing and figure out what's going on. EPA refused. They, will not want, they did not want to do that. And, and to this day, have refused to do any indoor air testing. They're, they're, ostensibly, they argued, well, there, there will be other reasons why there are volatile chemicals in people's homes. And while, while that's true, that's not what you would look for. You wouldn't look for a group of chemicals. You would look for the specific chemicals on the train. 
You know what was on the train. You know what people were exposed to. Why would you look for a generic, do a generic test that would include all kinds of things that weren't on a train? And so, so no, I don't see it changing soon because whatever's driving EPA is not concerned about the residents and the health of the people of East Palestine. It's something else. It's something either political or something to protect the company. I don't know what it is, but it's not, it's clearly not to answer the questions that the community has in East Palestine. And, and so, uh, it, yeah, let me stop there. When, when these issues are so, uh, so significant and potentially dangerous to human health and residents have such a difficult time getting anyone to listen, what can they do? What do you suggest that people do if they're concerned about these kinds of things, uh, whether it be dioxin in a in a neighborhood park or um, or PFAS in the water. I mean, what what can they do? Well, I think there's only one choice that people have, only one option, and that is to organize, and that is to create a, a small group based on the people who've been exposed, and to come together with and create public pressure on the decision makers whether it's the EPA, the state health agencies, or the regulating agencies in the, in the state, or the, and, and their politicians. Because, um, but the problem ultimately, even when they do that, is that the, the, the bureaucrats, the decision makers turn to their scientists to say, well, what's going on here? And the scientists have these tools, which you look at one chemical at a time and say, well, we don't see how there's any problem here. Uh, that's the bigger problem here. But I think what people need to do is is raise this that that the, and recognize that the scientists aren't aren't don't have the answers. They have their opinions, as I do. But my opinion is very different than what the state toxicologists in the state of Wisconsin did, for example, around Warsaw or in the situation of East Palestine. Very different of what the EPA is saying there. And so, but recognizing that that I think the next step is to recognize that we don't know the answers to these questions. And in the case of East Palestine, I think what they need to be doing is, is recognizing that there's precedent for other situations where we didn't have the science answers. And the, the answer wasn't to do nothing and let the situation continue, but to acknowledge the limitations of the science and give healthcare and, and provide other compensation to, to the groups that have been impacted. Simplest example of that are the Vietnam veterans who were exposed to Agent Orange. Agent Orange contains dioxin, same chemical in Wausau, same chemical in East Palestine. That was the primary driver of the risk. And in the case of the Vietnam veterans, the, the science, the you know, soldiers were coming to the Veterans Administration and say, you know, we have this cancer, we have that, we have this, all of which were connected to dioxin exposure. They, but the Vietnam vets, the, the VA was saying, well, our science people say that there's no clear evidence that your health problem was caused by this exposure. So it came to light that we were, so what happened, we were ignoring the vets and they were continuing to suffer and, and going nowhere. And so finally, after the public pressure from the vets, they recognized that we don't have the science. The science is incomplete. So what we're going to do is make two decisions. One, we're going to acknowledge that we don't have the information. We don't have the science. And if you were in Vietnam during the time of spraying, you will have been, you'll be considered exposed. And the second thing that we're going to do is we brought to, they brought together a National Academy of Sciences committee to look at the health effects connected to exposure to dioxin. And they made a list of, of health problems that for which there is sufficient science 
to acknowledge and recognize that this and one simple one is is adult onset diabetes, type two diabetes. There's strong evidence from the literature that dioxin can cause that. So anybody who had type two diabetes or is anybody who had pancreas can pancreatic cancer, which is again another one of those chemicals on uh, health problems on the list, then they will get compensation from the VA. They can submit their claims, get treatment. And, and, and it's not just healthcare, but that's a big start and a huge start, even in tech in communities like East Palestine, getting somebody to come in and help treat them for chemical exposure would be a huge first step. I wanna thank you so much for spending the time with us today and talking about these very important issues. I really appreciate it. You're quite welcome. I, I hope it's been helpful. Just ahead, we'll hear from Matt Thompson, a hydrogeologist with the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. I'm Shireen Seward. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. Back on Route 51, I'm Shireen Seward. Earlier, we heard from CHEJ Science Director Stephen Lester on dioxin, PFAS, and other chemicals that communities in Wisconsin are concerned with and the risks involved with respect to public health. When we recorded that segment of the program, Matt Thompson from the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources had been scheduled to join us for this segment, but ultimately was unable to meet with us today. Instead, we're very pleased to be speaking with Tony Wilkin Gibbart, the Executive Director of Midwest Environmental Advocates. He joins us now. Tony, thank you so much for being here. I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Shereen. Can you give us a little brief overview of Midwest Environmental Advocates, what it does, and what your role is there? Absolutely. So Midwest Environmental Advocates is a nonprofit environmental law center that works with communities around the state. We combine our environmental legal expertise with their passion and resolve to defend the, the rights that they have to healthy water, land, and air um, to empower them to make a difference for their communities. And so we work with folks around the state on a variety of environmental issues, including issues of toxic contamination, uh, including PFAS, which is a huge focus uh, over the last several years, but other uh, legacy industrial contaminants. About two years ago, you wrote a column that I read on clean water. And in your column, you said that Wisconsin had fallen behind on addressing lead and nitrates and PFAS. Is that still the case today? Yeah, I, I, I think that's still a fair assessment, or at least we've fallen behind from where historically we would be as a state in responding to emerging environmental issues. Wisconsin has historically been um, at the very front of the pack in developing environmental and public health protections that are nimble and responsive. But over the last decade plus, we've seen an erosion of those environmental protections We've seen the legislature and special interests get in the way of updating water quality protections and other environmental health protections to respond to emerging contaminants like PFAS. So um, it's, it's not new that a contaminant emerges of concern and then our regulatory system has to catch up. And that's what we're in the midst of right now with PFAS. That's played out before in the past. What is new is that we have relatively concerted, 
um, well-financed uh, efforts to use both litigation and um, obstruction in the legislature to get in the way of our, our environmental laws responding to, to PFAS. So we saw, for instance, the uh, Natural Resource Board's rejection of a PFAS groundwater quality standard uh, close to two years ago. Um, and uh, we're still trying to get a, a, a groundwater quality standard on the books. If we were in kind of uh, normal political times and times when uh, decisions were being made more based on science than on politics, we would already have a groundwater quality standard on the books for, for PFOA and PFOS, which are uh, kind of the, the two most commonly uh, studied uh, forms of PFAS that um, are just starting to be regulated now at the state and federal levels. When we talked with Stephen Lester earlier in the program, he was a little bit critical of the EPA for its lack of guidance with respect to some chemicals. Uh, dioxin was his example, uh, but they've also not come out with an absolute regulatory standard on PFAS either. Do you think it would be helpful if the EPA did issue more regulatory guidance in some of these areas? Absolutely. Um, and you know the system that we we have both federally and to some extent on the state level is that our regulatory system is constantly playing catch up that thousands and thousands of uh, PFAS but even and you know other chemicals have been introduced into the environment with very little or minimal oversight once they're out in the environment um, concerns emerge and then the system that we have means that it takes many years before those chemicals, those compounds can be regulated. So in the case of PFAS, we're talking about a class of 12,000 chemical compounds. And the system as, it, as it's operating now is basically looking one by one at those, those compounds, those chemicals, and beginning a multi-year, many-year process of developing guidance and regulation um, around remediation around um, production and distribution in the environment. That is a system um, that's never going to be uh, successful. And so it's, it's, it would be much better if uh, we had a system that proactively required chemical manufacturers to uh, prove that their products are safe before they are spread into the environment. So I, I think it is right to be critical of EPA, they could be doing more and going faster. And it's also important to just take a look at the system as a whole and zoom out and say, it's not up to the task. When do you think those EPA standards will be released um, regarding PFAS? We've been hearing that they'll be coming down with something. And I'm curious your thoughts on whether or not that will ultimately settle the question for Wisconsin or whether it's still going to be a state thing. Well, we're, this is going to be a process that plays out over the course of many years. Um, we are expecting final um, MCLs, maximum contaminant levels, for drinking water for six PFAS compounds soon. Um, you know, the the uh, expected finalization of those standards was supposed to be around the end of last year. Um, it's not. It's it's kind of been the case that. Um, it's been a moving target. When those come on online, those will be very, very helpful. Um, Wisconsin will have several years to adopt those into our state regulation and the process of 
drinking water uh, of, of uh, local water utilities complying with those will be a, a multi-year process. So this is going to take time. And even then, we're just talking about six of the compounds and there are thousands of compounds. And that's why it's, well, it, that's an important step forward. Again, we need to take a step back and look at the fact that we, we should be regulating PFAS as a class of compounds, that going piecemeal um, is not going to be uh, successful or protective uh, in the long run. Despite the emerging science, there is still a fair amount of skepticism in the public. In fact, I just read uh, a letter to the editor in a in a local newspaper from uh, a gentleman who was talking about he just didn't believe that there was any health risk associated with PFAS, that there wasn't any health risk associated with lead, that it, that it's all some kind of um, you know scare tactic for political reasons. Why do you think that skepticism still exists, and what can be done about it? It's difficult for any of us to wrap our heads around the fact that there might be uh, chemicals or compounds in the water coming out of our tap that we drink every day in minuscule quantities that could have profound and significant impacts on our health, our life expectancy, whether we'll get cancer, our um, ability to um, have healthy and immune systems that will protect us from you know a variety of illnesses and diseases it's it's difficult to understand that you know just it's not something that we encounter in our day-to-day -day life um but uh you know the science around lead for example has been clear for decades uh that lead is a neurotoxin we know that that's beyond doubt and and the science around pfas is um becoming increasingly clear that pfas compounds um interfere with um you know basic uh, uh, processes in our cells um, in numerous ways and multiple systems in our bodies um, that are harmful to human health that create unacceptable risks. And so um, I, I, I can sympathize with, with folks who have a you know difficulty wrapping their head around that. I know that I do as well, but at the end of the day, um, we've trusted science in the past and it has kept us healthier and safer and living longer, and we need to continue to do that. One of the things that we talked about with um, with Stephen Lester was the difficulty that some residents, neighborhood residents, have when they're trying to get a cleanup initiated. In Stephen Lester's case, he talked a little bit about Love Canal, uh, and which he was uh, really in. You know, very intimately involved in. We also talked about the situation in Wausau. There have been a couple situations in Wausau where residents and environmental advocates have said, "Hey, we know that there's this, you know, there's dioxin in the soil. There's, um, you know, this is dangerous," and they had to fight for years to get anybody to really take them seriously, to get anybody who even acknowledged that it might be a risk um, before cleanup was underway. Is that the case in community after community and why? I mean, why is it so hard for um, for residents who want toxic cleanup to be successful? Yeah, it's, it's very uh, commonly the case that it's um, necessary for community leaders and organizers to draw attention to issues, to watchdog state and federal authorities, to push back on the obstruction of polluters. And um, I, you know, I think part of the reason that's the reality is that um, it's just a fact that 
responsible parties, polluters, the companies that cause uh, these uh, sites of contamination, they have the financial resources to hire consultants, lobbyists, uh, and attorneys to push back and run interference and obstruct. And um, absolutely, uh, state and local officials could do a better job and should do a better job of getting community input, of listening to community voices. Um, that's part of what needs to happen. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's also the case that uh, polluters and responsible parties, yet they threaten lawsuits. They um, uh, create situations where um, it's, they're the ones who are bending the ear of state and local officials constantly because they have the resources to do that. And so it, it, it really does take that level of commitment and coordination uh, within the community to um, often get traction. And that's, that's why our group exists. That's why Midwest Environmental Advocates exists because we are a public interest environmental law firm that can work with communities like Citizens for a Clean Wausau, like the folks up in Marinette and Peshtigo who are responding to PFAS contamination in, in their community um, to be legal and policy advisors for them to try to help level that playing field. Um, uh, because it is inherently uh, imbalanced. Do you think the tide is changing? Do you think it's becoming easier for people to really fight uh, for these kinds of cleanups, or has that not really changed? Well, I think there are uh, some promising developments lately. I think there's renewed uh, attention at the state and federal levels with the Biden administration and the Evers administration that environmental justice should be an important goal and um, guiding principle in how uh, governments approach uh, remediation and uh, cleanup. Um, so environmental justice is the concept that um, historically low-income communities and communities of color have borne disproportionate environmental health burdens um, for reasons of historic and current discrimination, because those communities have less resources to, um, to uh, push back um, and to speak up and to be politically connected. And so there need to be intentional efforts to counterbalance those tendencies. Um, at, at the federal level, the Biden administration has, through executive order and through um, uh, recent um, funding bills, dedicated um, grants and uh, to environmental justice communities so that they can better participate in cleanup processes um, at the state level. The DNR uh, has recently uh, hired an environmental justice policy advisor to um, be in the, the secretary's office and to be a liaison within the department. And we've seen some, um, some improvements because of those policy choices from the the Biden and the Ebers administration, but it still, again, is an uphill battle and, and communities like the folks on the southwest side of Wausau still need to be very, very engaged and to be tenacious. And um, I give them a lot of credit for, for doing so. Um, uh, it, those are these really are heroic efforts. You mentioned earlier about how you determine um, who is re ultimately responsible. How difficult is that? Uh, it can be very difficult, especially when we're talking about 
legacy contamination, contamination, contamination that occurred many years ago, decades ago, where the responsible businesses may no longer exist. That's one of the reasons that um, uh, federal law provides for um, what's called the Superfund, and that is a, um, a law and a policy that really came out of the situation at uh, Love Canal that uh, Stephen was so involved in, um, where historically the chemical and petroleum industries have paid uh, taxes, because um, sometimes called a, a polluters pay tax, so that there uh, is a fund available to cover situations where the responsible party can't be identified or, or doesn't pay. Um, that has been historically underfunded, uh, especially since that tax uh, was not renewed in the mid 1990s. It's also that's also a reason why you know there can be responsible party liability for the current owner of sites. Well, and you know that's uh, an important principle that there should be um, some level of investment and commitment from the property owner that currently owns the site and um, might have the ability to um, relieve the taxpayers and of the, uh, the cost of remediation. And we can't lose sight of the fact that if uh, it's not the taxpayers or the, the current owner of the site or a responsible party, that the cost is still there. The cost is borne by the community members, the, the families living in and around the site who are bearing the real life health costs and burdens associated with um, toxic contamination. Tony, I want to thank you so much for joining us and spending this time today. I appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome, Shereen. Thank you for your coverage. This is Route 51. I'm Shereen Seward. Once more, extending a sincere thanks to our guests, Tony Wilkin Gibbard and Stephen Lester. Ezra Wall and Joy Ratchkramer assisted in producing this program. Thanks to John Altenberg for the Route 51 theme. You can hear the archive of today's program as well as our previous programs at wpr.org route 51 and on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Wisconsin Public Radio.